Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the SciComm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, and today I'm joined by Mark Schurz. Mark is a PhD student and herpetologist. So without any further ado, here's the next episode of SciComm. Hi everyone, welcome to another brand new episode of the SciComm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, and with me today is Mark Schurz. Hi Mark, how are you? Hi there, I'm doing fine, how are you? I'm very good. So Mark is a PhD student. He is, let me get this correct, a German, American, Swiss, British heritage. He grew up in Switzerland for the most part, did his BSc in zoology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And then he did his master's in ecology, evolution and systematics at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich or LMU. He then started his PhD directly after that. And the same group uh, between the LMU and the Technical University of Braunschweig. I probably butchered that pronunciation. No, that was good, actually. <laughs> You're very kind. So anyway, Mark, how are you? Keeping well? I'm doing fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. It's nice to be on the show. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's chilled. I like to keep my psychom relaxed. Yeah, so hopefully, good. hopefully I'll maintain that level of chill so the first question i want to get into uh basically if you want to explain to us um what exactly herpetology is and what got you interested in it sure so um herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians which for those of us who are um versed in biology is uh, very clearly a non-natural group so the the amphibians and reptiles are not really closely related the birds are somewhere in there and actually if you if you include the natural groups only then you would also have to deal with all of the mammals being in that group so um herpetology is something of a, a bastardized um uh, group that's built together of all of the amphibians and all of the reptiles and none of the things with feathers or fur Cool. And that's sort of the, <laughs> a simple way to think of it. It's from, so uh, to, to dive a bit into the etymology, um, herpeton is the Greek word for uh, crawling or, or creeping animal. And that is the, the origin of the term. So it's the study of things that creep. Wow. <laughs> Everything and, that creeps pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Although they don't go into like all of the insects. And yeah, it's not the creepy crawlies or the worms. No, it's not creepy crawlies, exactly. It's the, <laughs> all of the, the squamate reptiles and so the non, non-avian non reptiles and uh, the amphibians. Although I'm sure all the places that you visit sort of share the same environment as all those creepy crawlies. Yes, I mean, there is no shortage of them everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. know tell us what all those well i suppose specifically uh just tell us maybe what amphibians or reptiles whichever you want to talk about what they're sort of uh what do they eat all the time yeah so um so both of them are quite varied groups so in the reptiles you have lots and lots of different specializations so snakes are obviously snakes are in fact a really specialized group of lizards that are very um strongly uh, carnivorous there are no non-carnivorous snakes as far as i'm aware and then within the the other squamate reptiles there are things that are herbivores and um and proper predators and there are even like um frugivores and nectarivores and um so reptiles are super super varied the amphibians tend to be more strongly carnivorous and off the top of my head, I can't think of any that are eating 
things that are um, eating plant material, at least voluntarily. Yeah. Um, but, you know, within the amphibians, there are three main groups. There are the frogs, um, frogs and toads, although toads are really just a, a silly name for a group of frogs. And then there is the, um, there are the salamanders, which are super varied. Some salamanders have legs, some don't have legs. Some salamanders have lungs, others don't have lungs. And then there are the Sicilians, which are sort of the most neglected group of, uh, of amphibians. And they are totally legless, um, very weird, worm-like uh, amphibians that are possibly one of the oldest groups of amphibians that's still alive today. And they have very weird um, uh, ecological things and also structural things in their skeletons and i don't know very much about them because as we'll <laughs> talk about in a bit they are not found in madagascar uh-huh and as a result i've never seen one so okay <laughs> that's sort well, of um, i, I, I sort won't of ask you to saying. explain stuff you've never seen that's okay yeah that's that's fair thank you so you, <laughs> so you mentioned madagascar there so i take it you have gone there for your studies or for your research could you maybe tell us about your experience there yeah, so um, you asked before why or what got me interested in herpetology and asking what got me interested in Madagascar is a very, very closely related question. So I, um, somewhere around the tender age of, of eight or nine years old, fell in love with Madagascar as a country, um, probably inspired by like little uh, animal related books that were talking about lemurs or something. Yeah. And um, at the time, you know, I don't have this conscious development of, oh, I'm really interested in reptiles. But somewhere early in my childhood, there must have been a catalyst, because when I look back, I realize that most of the strongest memories that I have from my childhood are like being at the end of a creek in America and seeing a mating ball of garter snakes and being absolutely terrified and like raising an alligator snapping turtle at least for one year and then you know before I um, so I, I lived for nine years in America when I was very small and growing up mm -hmm. and um, before we left to move to Switzerland I had been in negotiations with my father you know as a nine-year-old trying yeah. to convince him to allow me to have an iguana so there was already this sort of um, seed of herpetological interest yeah and then i guess the whole thing with madagascar sealed the deal because madagascar has the most spectacular herpetofauna um so herpetofauna is just the word for the diversity of reptiles and amphibians yeah so, so to put that sort of in perspective madagascar has um around 350 described amphibian species and uh about 450 um, described reptile species i mean at least three sorry go sorry on. i was just i was just whenever you said those numbers i mean that sounds like a lot i mean what sort of area does madagascar cover and is that sort of normal yeah. for that size this is the thing so um just to, just to finish what i was saying with the 300 species of amphibians 350 amphibian species that's only the described species we've yeah. shown with barcoding there's actually another 300 species that are waiting for description oh, so okay. actually there are on the on the order of 700 species of amphibians in madagascar now for um the the europeans among the audience madagascar is roughly the size of uh, Germany plus Italy combined. 
Oh, pretty big. And one. for the Americans in the audience, is about the size of California. So <laughs> it is a very, very, very large island. It's the world's fourth largest island. Wow, that's quite yeah. uh, that's quite the diversity on just one island. It's just amazing. Exactly, it's vast. Are and, there any other um, islands that sort of give that same level of diversity? Very close. So there is New Guinea. Um, which probably is, so New Guinea is slightly larger than Madagascar and probably has something on the same order of the diversity. But because the biogeography of New Zealand, uh, of, of, sorry, not, not New Zealand, New Guinea is so totally different from Madagascar, the situation there is quite, um, quite the polar opposite. So Madagascar got to its position about 600 kilometers off the east coast of Africa during the breakup of Gondwana. Mm -hmm. And um, it's roughly stayed in its position. Now, early in Gondwana breakup, it was sitting with India along its east coast. And then India split off, went up into Asia and slammed into Asia to form the Himalayas. <laughs> Whereas what happened in New Guinea, and I don't know this story as, as detailed as I know that in Madagascar, but New Guinea sits on the northern end of the Australasian shelf, which was also part of Gondwana. And then it has somehow rifted away from Australia and combined also with part of the Asian shelf. But it's not nearly as isolated as Madagascar is. It has lots of little tiny islands that actually link it both to Australia itself and to Southeast Asia directly. So it's very small island hopping events that could get animals to and from New Guinea. So it probably had a lot more exchange than Madagascar has had. So, okay, so there's been exchange in New Guinea, but what, yeah. what sort of reasons are there for the, you know, the levels of biodiversity in Madagascar? What's bringing all these species to the island? Yeah, it's a good question because in Madagascar, you would expect, you know, it having been a Gondwanan place, you might have lots of remnants of the Gondwanan diversity, but instead what we have is this really unique, more modern diversity. Um, and that has come about because Madagascar sat already isolated around 65 million years ago when the KT event, the large um, extinction that wiped out all of the non-avian dinosaurs yeah. took place. Um, and so Madagascar was probably almost completely depopulated of reptiles and amphibians and most other groups at that point, and then subsequently colonized. And any colonist that was arriving mostly from East Africa, but possibly also from other areas, um, they were arriving to a depauperate fauna. And so they could diversify and spread in just uh, unbelievable ways. And that... Um, that very sudden, we call it a, a selective release, allowed them to fill all of these different niches that were sitting completely empty. So and that is yeah. why we have so much diversity that's um, that's unique in Madagascar. I mean, are there other smaller islands where I know you study? Is it e ecological speciation? Can you mm. maybe tell us about that and how the other islands influence you know different species. Well, ecological speciation is just essentially the, the concept that um, the way that we think about speciation, so this formation of species, the way that we think about that is much too focused on the geography of the situation. So you're talking about allopatry, 
which is two, two populations that are separated from one another with very little gene flow diverging. Yeah. Versus sympatry, which is two populations that are in fact interdigitating or on top of each other that are presumably diverging with gene flow. And that's the essential difference with whether they have gene flow or not. Okay. Now, um, ecological speciation is not talking about whether or not there's gene flow, but what the selective pressure is that's driving the divergence of the different species. So in the case of Darwin's finches, which is probably the best example of, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you always have to keep going back to Darwin's finches as an evolutionary biologist. You have no choice, essentially. <laughs> it's a good um, but you have all of these birds that are diverging on a single island or a, a number of different islands. And the dominant um, force that is driving their divergence is which um, type of seed they are able to consume or what, what their prey is prey here used in a very unspecific <laughs> term you know prey um, that just sits so, there you know exactly so so what their diet consists of and um, based on on that you could say that this is also an ecological divergence because the predominant thing that is causing these species to diverge is possibly for example females if, if the females are the choosy sex and the females are choosing only males that eat the same types of seeds as they do, then the ecology of the species is the thing that's driving the divergence. Yeah. And that is the concept of ecological speciation. Now in Madagascar, we have this, um, this system that is extremely full of, of well, it's, it's actually many, many, many different systems. And what we're trying to do with ecological speciation is sort of tease out what is driving divergences, especially in individual uh, locations across the across the island? So I mean, so, yeah, during your time there, were you able to you know go across the entirety of the, the whole island, or were you restricted? Oh, that's, um, yeah, yeah. It's um, so I should have said this before. I have been to Madagascar nine times now, eight times now. I can't remember. Um, but I went the very first time when I was 14 years old uh, as part of this, you know, becoming obsessed with the country and then my parents yeah. not here, not, not um, you know, getting a moment's rest from me talking about it. And then, um, yeah, so essentially I was able to coerce my father into taking me to Madagascar. So I started in 2014 and that first 2014 trip was... Um, was going across a lot of Western Madagascar. So I actually, um, from the very first trip, had seen quite a lot of the island. Subsequently, I've been back to a number of different places, but it's just, it, it would be a life's work to try and go to really see everything. I mean, it's not, it's not really possible, but I have seen large chunks of the Eastern rainforest, um, the Northern rainforests, and I've spent quite a long time in the spiny forests in the south which are absolutely bizarre i mean would you just just walking through it would you easily see like 50 different species of something yeah i mean so um we do regularly these sort of surveys where we go to a single parcel of forest and then we'll uh, over the course of a week we'll try and tease out um the diversity of the forest so we so do these surveys rapid survey techniques and what's, and, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. So within um, a week, you can expect to find something on the order of 30 to 50 just frog species. 
Wow. In most, in any rainforest area. As you go further west, things get a lot drier. And yeah. in those areas, there are a lot fewer amphibians. So the east is really rich in amphibian fauna and generally rich in reptile fauna too. But as you go west, the dominant proportion of the biodiversity is made up rather of reptiles than of amphibians. So was there like a moment or a, just an area that you got to where there's sort of a, a mix of reptiles and amphibians? Oh, everywhere has a mix. It's just yeah. that there must be some areas, probably in the central highlands, you'll get to some areas where there's roughly the same number of species of amphibians as there are reptiles, simply because you're somewhere in that transition zone between it's becoming drier and hotter, and that is what the reptiles prefer over yeah. the amphibians. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I want to talk about um, a specific frog subfamily. Um, not sure how to pronounce it. Cophylinae? Cophylinae. There you go. So yeah. could you maybe tell us why this frog subfamily is so incredible in your own opinion? Yeah, so the cophylines are a group of um, microhylid frogs. So microhylid frogs are narrow-mouthed frogs. Um, they are only present in, um, in the Americas on the one hand, and then in all of the old world except for Europe and parts of Africa and Asia. So there are microhylid frogs um, over most of the world, but not in Europe, regrettably. So some, if there are Americans in the, in the audience, they might know gastrophrene, which is um, a well-known frog that there are two different species in, in North America, in, in the United States. And they're very cute. They tend to have these quite <laughs> narrow faces and, um, and pointed sort of pointed snouts. And so Madagascar has three different subfamilies of cophylene frogs. Um, there are the discophinae, which are the world-famous tomato frogs. Uh, so you might have seen those in a pet store because they're quite common in the pet <laughs> bright <trade>. red. <laughs> yeah, bright red, very, very, very fat, um, okay. broad frogs that uh, um, they are found in the, in the north of Madagascar. And then there's one species that's not in the pet trade that's in the west of Madagascar as well. And then there are these two other... So they, they are a, a weird group because they are their own radiation to Madagascar. So that's a single arrival in Madagascar of one group of frogs that then diversified into a small number of species. Um, but they have their own subfamily. And then there are two more subfamilies, which are the Scaphiophrininae, um, which are, I mean, that's a, a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't try and, and pronounce that. Yeah, so the Scaphiophrininae involve... Um, um, Gottlieber's uh, um, scaphiophrine. So that's a little bright red painted frog. It's actually one of the edge species, if you know the edge um, project. So it's um, a, a cute little, it's also a very round frog. Um, and they're sort of found across Madagascar. Again, not very diverse. Yeah. And then there are the cophylines. And the cophylines are, they are currently eight genera of cophylene frogs, and they range from the largest microhylid frog in the world at around 11 centimeters to what I think may be one of the smallest frogs in the world at around eight or nine millimeters, which is uh, something that we are in the process of describing. So um, in terms of their size diversity, the cophylines are a spectacular group. 
Um, they are also spectacular because we have shown with molecular phylogenies that the miniaturized species are not just one instance of miniaturization, like a sort of trend towards smaller body size, yeah. but rather repeated instances of miniaturization across the tree. So there's something about these frogs that is allowing them to repeatedly get smaller and smaller, <laughs> which is totally weird. It's very weird. Why, why do you think they're getting smaller? Um, I mean, you said they're, it's, they're selecting for this, so it's not like there's a lim limitation to food or anything? Yeah, so this is the thing. So a, a lot of people talk about how in, in amphibians there is no um, food limitation because amphibians are total, like most frogs are uh, generalists, so they will eat anything that is small enough to fit into their mouths, yeah. whether or not it's it could be a related frog, it could even be their own tadpoles sometimes, um, you know, all kinds of different things. Yeah, they'll and, survive. Yeah, and what we are trying to figure out is exactly this question. Why is it that these frogs, more than other frogs, are, are miniaturizing? And we have a few hypotheses, and this is sort of and this is one of the big, um, the big pieces of my PhD, actually, is trying to tease out the answers to this question. Um, but one of them might be that, so the microhylids in general are quite famous for having very, um, very flexible skeleton evolution. That's not to say that their bones are bendy, but rather <laughs> that within one group you have a lot of different weird things happening in their skeleton as they're evolving. Yeah. And what we've seen in these, um, these co-filings as they miniaturize, they converge in terms of their skeleton on almost exactly the same shape, even though they're separated by something like 20 to 30 million years sometimes and, and multiple different groups that are much larger. So crazy. there is, yeah, it's totally bizarre, but some elements of the skull that are so some elements of the skeleton that are often associated with body size changes in frogs for example the loss of teeth or the yeah. loss of digits that's very very common but we see across these different groups actually that those are not necessarily consistent so we have several of these tiny tiny frogs that actually do have teeth even though they're 10 millimeter <laughs> long frogs I and mean, what do you use teeth for if you're only 10 millimeters long? <laughs> well, Nothing, exactly. right? It's well, bizarre. <laughs> well, I mean, they must use them for something or, you know, they wouldn't be there, I guess. You would think so. But, you know, you also have, um, I believe this is called an anachronism, where you have these, uh, these evolutionary remnants that are not being selected away. And the, you know, it takes a long time for drift yeah. to just get rid of that sort of thing. And so you're left with an appendix, essentially, you know, yeah, um, you know, our appendix and various other pieces of the human body are just remnants of, you A know, history just... that hasn't been selected away yet. And, yeah. and that's sort of what we're left with in these frogs. I mean, see those small frogs you were talking about, were there, are there greater numbers of them relative to the larger frogs? This is an excellent question. Um, it's very hard to say because these cofidines, I should have mentioned, are all or mostly leaf litter dwellers and actually the the smallest ones are all leaf litter dwellers so even ones that are evolving from within groups that are all arboreal all of them are living in the trees all of them found one to five meters above the ground and then suddenly 
you have this one that has gone miniaturized and it has converged on this tiny leaf litter dwelling thing. Um, but judging just from bioacoustics, which is something mm. that we use a lot in this sort of, um, in the taxonomy of these frogs and trying to study them, I would say that they are absolutely hyper abundant. So you can go up, for example, there's a mountain in northeastern Madagascar called Marojezi or Marojeji, and it goes from uh, roughly sea level to 2,300 meters over a very, very short distance. So it's extremely steep. And as you get to the top, or between 1,300 meters and 2,300 meters, yeah. there are these frogs that are called Stumphia tridactyla which is a species that was described in the 70s by a, a Frenchman called Jean Gubet. And these frogs are so ridiculously abundant that you can't hear their calls anymore, really, because your brain filters it out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just like so white they, noise in the background. Exactly. They have these calls um, that are like... And it's just thousands and thousands and thousands Constant. of these little frogs <laughs> making these little chirping sounds. Wow. And That's kind of weird. <laughs> it's bizarre. I'm sure yeah. it's surreal when you're there listening. Yeah, to it is. It is. And, you know, as the as taxonomists and as people studying these frogs, you have to be able to tell them apart by ear. Oh, goodness. So, That's quite a challenge you know, for you. I have never been able to do it with birds. So when <laughs> I was younger, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm quite keen on birds. So, you know, I'll try and identify. I can't do it at all. No. Like, I can't even tell a starling from a from a, a sparrow or something, which <laughs> should be really obvious. But with frogs, for some reason, I'm relative, probably because I care more about them. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> <But> why. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more um, able to keep apart frog calls so I can usually tell especially if you're in an area where you know roughly what there should be there yeah um you can usually tell what sort of the species are that are calling and we have these crazy soundscapes where you've got all these frogs from all these different groups um that are calling in a huge cacophony and if you stand there silent for about 10 minutes you can start to tease out maybe not 10 minutes actually maybe just two you can start to tease out what's calling you know is this a bufus, one of these big uh, green tree frogs, yeah. or is it one of the leaf litter frogs that's making these whistling calls, or is it one of the? There are some bigger leaf litter frogs that just like. I mean, do you carry around sort of like a an audio database with you to remind um, yourself? Not an audio database, but we keep our recorders with us. So okay. I carry around um, a, a fancy Marantz recorder and a, a beautiful Sennheiser shotgun microphone. And then I like uh, when I'm trying to catch the frog that's making the call, first you have to find the frog, and then you set up the microphone and make a recording, and then you try and catch it. So somewhere along <laughs> the line, the frog tends to get away. Just, yeah, um, how hard is it to catch a frog? <laughs> um, catching frogs is actually not that hard because most frogs, at least during the night, most frogs are transfixed by your head torch. Oh, you scare them. So, yeah, you, you, you sort of scare them and then they're much less likely to jump away. And actually, the worst thing that you can do is be super timid about catching the frog. Oh, so just... if you're like, oh, not quite, not quite going for it, then the frog will get away because it'll just yeah. jump. I don't know. Um, but if I think... you just like wham, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> I mean, obviously not hurting the frog, yeah. but just grab it. I would be um, afraid of damage. Like, yeah, I would be afraid of damaging, especially how small they are. Yeah, I mean, most of them are quite resilient. Yeah. You know, every, every now and then, 
it's like, you know, if you're catching a lizard, there's always that risk that you're going to break off the lizard's tail. Oh, and um, that is something I would be much more worried about with, with catching lizards than with catching any frog, because no frog part of the body is meant to break off. And, yeah, it can um, sort of bend a bit. Yeah, exactly. So for the most part, I'm not um, overly concerned about, <laughs> like, especially, you know, frogs are, you know, everyone says that humans are 90% water. Um, but for me, there's a, there's an awful lot of flesh on a human, whereas a frog is really <laughs> like you grab a frog and the first thing it does is just squirt pure water all over you oh, really? because that's its equivalent of peeing. Oh, okay. Um, but it's just, it's actual, I mean, it's not pure water. It's got some sort of body metabolites in it, presumably. Yeah. Um, but they do just spray it on you. So the, most of the frog's body is made of water, which is a very nice cushioning effect also against your hand. <laughs> nice and soft to pick up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, frogs just feel delightful, you know, they're very squishy. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so could you maybe tell us what chameleons you've studied and what you've learned from working with them? Yeah, so we have, um, the chameleons are a crazy system. So my colleague, David, he's a, another PhD student here at the, at the LMU. And his PhD has been on a particular group of chameleons called the Kaluma Nazutum group. So Kaluma Nazutum is um, a sort of 10 centimeter long, uh, very small chameleon with a very... Um, it has quite a long no uh, nose, so schnoz, sort of like um, if you're familiar with the those monkeys, you know, the monkeys that have the big, the big um, noses, spatulate yeah. noses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it has something like that, but it doesn't hang. It's not flappy down, but okay. it's um, it goes it juts out from the front of the face and it's covered in scales and it's also soft. So it doesn't have any bones underneath it. And that particular group, there was a, a study that was published, I think, in 2010 um, by another colleague of ours in Germany that showed that there were about 30 different genetic lineages within this group. And there were four names. So uh, maybe six names. But anyway, a dramatic underestimate of all of the diversity of that group, right? Yeah. So probably each of these lineages is, if not a separate species, then at least an important lineage. And what David has been working on is trying to tease apart the taxonomy of those groups, so describing new things. And um, I have been working together with him quite closely on that description because I've helped to collect some of those chameleons and also because I'm just very, very interested in pretty much all of the things that are happening in terms of reptiles and amphibians in Madagascar. Yeah, just um, the entire so, island. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so on the one hand, there's that. There's sort of this alpha taxonomy stuff that's going on. So alpha taxonomy refers to species level taxonomy. And then we also have a really big project on chameleons that I can't reveal too much detail about. Super secret. Um, but yeah, so it, it's going into sort of what is driving um, body size evolution again, because that's something that really interests me, as well as um, trying to understand how the... So, so chameleons like this, this blue-nosed chameleon... Um, I, I didn't mention that it has a blue nose, but this flap of skin in the front of the face is blue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they're called blue nose chameleons. Um, and that that flap is called an ornament because it's not a ecologically significant piece of the 
head probably but yeah. is actually rather a sexual ornament so females maybe look at these male chameleons see their silly noses and say oh that's the one for me <laughs> and um and in general you may be familiar with the fact that some chameleons have horns like rhinoceros horns and other chameleons have sails on their backs like dimetrodon so you have all of these bizarre structures that are evolving in chameleons and this big project that we have going on where we're making really good really good progress actually it's coming it's coming along nicely hmm. uh in no small part due to the incredible work of a master's student that we are collaborating with he's helping us in the lab um his name is teddy he's been doing really cool work um but anyway so that project is moving along and we're starting to look into sort of the evolution of um these sexual sexual structures um and we're trying to tie the evolution of those structures these external ornaments to the ornamentation of the hemi penis so um reptiles have two not one uh genital ornaments uh genital organs so they mm -hmm. have instead of a single penis they have a hemi penis so <laughs> okay. um and they do not use both at once but rather uh, a single one at a time and what was shown really early on in studies on reptiles actually by cope in the 1700s i think or or early 1800s anyway um was that in snakes at least the diversity of ornamentation on the hemi penis so not no longer talking about the external part of the of the organ uh, of, of the animal but rather talking only about this sexual organ um coke found that the ornamentation of that organ is actually super useful for understanding the evolution of a whole group so understanding the systematics so he actually set up all of these different families and subfamilies of the snakes based solely on this one organ and he made the broad claim it's not possible to assign any snake to any of these groups without having seen its hemi penis so quite a, quite a bold conclusion quite a bold conclusion although i would say for the most part his conclusion has been ratified um cool. so for the most part that is more or less true at least in snakes and in chameleons um this also seems to be relatively true so the, the hemi penis ornamentation and stuff is very useful for taxonomy it helps us to identify differences between closely related species um and we're trying to sort of understand the evolution of its shape and um and all kinds of other things and how that ties together with the external ornamentation because both of these things are under sexual selection and that's sort of the the, the way that we are bundling together is uh, trying to study sexual selection across the phylogeny of all chameleons um not just the ones in madagascar cool so i know you're um a bit of a photographer you like to do your nature photography could you maybe just yeah. tell us what your favorite species are to photograph and what sort of gear uh, you uh, use yeah so my photography sort of career has changed rather a lot since i got since well since i was able to go into academia so there was a time when I was in Edinburgh that I was in the the Edinburgh University Photography Society and I was um I was helping to teach some of the courses there. 
And at the time, I was doing sort of artsy fartsy bird photography, trying to study, like, like trying to take lots and lots of um, fancy pictures of wildlife because I, I, I wanted to be a wildlife photographer. And I did a little bit of stuff also with people, especially in Madagascar. Um, so I, I was, for example, in a few funerals. Um, uh, I was able to attend a few funerals, I should say. <laughs> yeah, and um, <laughs> so and that was great because I was able to take some really um, photographs that I found very um, moving and interesting there. And nowadays, my photography is much more um, functional. So I don't do as much of this, you know, spending hours and hours and hours trying to photograph a single animal. Yeah. Um, what instead I do is, as we're working in the field. I will take, um, I photograph every single specimen that goes through our, our process. So every specimen that we are eventually going to deposit in any museum or anything, I photograph the animal while it's still alive. And, um, and I try to always do that at least one, so at least the, the normal standard series of pictures. So like for frogs, it's a dorsal picture, a lateral picture, and a ventral picture. I will do on a white background. And then I'll try and also put it at least for, for one photograph on sort of a natural background so that I could, for example, use it later on in a, in a field guide or in, a, in a, some kind of publication or whatever. So I do a lot of this extremely uh, function-oriented photography, but I think my favorite subjects, although they are extremely frustrating, <laughs> is probably Europla uh, uh, I was going to say chameleons. So there's... It's sort of between the two. So chameleons are great uh, because they are extremely expressive, but because they are so able to change their colors, yeah. it can be quite difficult to get naturalistic photographs of chameleons if they're already quite angry at you. <laughs> what color do they go? Red, uh, I presume? Typically, so, so it's extremely varied, but a lot of chameleons go sort of, um, extremely contrasting colors so they go like black and white for example or um, there's this one called Fursifer Timoni Timon's uh, um, for chameleon Timon is the son of the guy who named the chameleon oh, okay. um, who is who's actually one of my two supervisors <laughs> and uh, so this chameleon is normally a beautiful green coloration but when it's angry it turns black and yellow and it's just in this sort of um, striped, almost... Looks like a bumblebee kind of thing? Uh, yeah, sort of. Sort of <laughs> like that. And it's really, it's very, very spectacular, um, but not the kind of photograph that I'm looking for when I'm trying to capture, you know, something of the, the natural appearance yeah, of, of these course. chameleons. Um, and then there are... So the chameleons are fun but frustrating. Mm-hmm. And are there any there are, are there any geckos these, in Madagascar? Exactly, I was going to yeah. say. And then there are these geckos um, called Europlatus. So the Europlatus geckos are the leaf-tailed geckos. And so there are two different groups of, of um, so-called leaf-tailed leaf geckos. There are those in Madagascar, which are in the genus Europlatus. And then there are the ones in, um, in Australia, which are in the... They have their own subfamily, I think, mm -hmm. or family. They're the... Um, Saltuarius is one example, and then there's Philodactyl. No, not Philodactyl. Anyway, I don't remember. Um, but there, there are these leaf-tailed geckos in in Australia as well that have sort of 
converged on a similar niche, but not the same one, because the um, the Madagascan leaf-tailed geckos have really um, evolved to look just like. So there's one group that look exactly like tree bark, and there's another group that look exactly like dead leaves, oh, and wow. and I mean exactly so the, the dead leaf <laughs> ones are just spectacular yeah. their tail is flattened and looks exactly like a um, ficus leaf it's incredible in, isn't in, it? in the one species Europlatus fantasticus that is the case <laughs> it's a great name it's great isn't it <laughs> oh, is good. and then yeah and then there are other ones that have like um the so-called spear point geckos that have a tiny leaf type tail and then there are all of these tree bark forms yeah. where you have, for example, Europlatus giganteus, which is one of the largest of all geckos. Um, it grows to about 35 centimeters long. It's a very impressive wow. gecko. It's pretty cool. Um, and they are probably some of my very favorite subjects to photograph because unlike the chameleons, they are extremely cooperative. I mean, what if I, if I came across something, say I was in Madagascar, and I yeah. wasn't sure if it was a, a chameleon or a gecko, what sort of morphological features should I be looking for to identify? Oh, that's no problem. So all chameleons have these, um, these prehensile eyes that you're aware of, so the eyes can go in all Side directions. Side eyes everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> so um, so the, what's really cool about chameleons is that based on if you were to cover up one of the chameleon eyes if you were to cover up, cover up one of your own eyes yeah you would run into right things now. yeah <laughs> yeah so now if you try to grab something that's sitting on your desk you probably will miss yeah I'm and just... this is because humans are really rubbish at doing this <laughs> thing perception single eyed <laughs> um you can you can adapt to it you can learn how to do it um if you lose one eye but in general we are true binocular seers yeah Chameleons are not binocular seers. Chameleons have this very weird mechanism that's called... Um, oh, wait. It's coming to me. It is called... Uh, I can't remember. Anyway. <laughs> so, come basically, basically what chameleons do is that based on very subtle movements of the eyeball, they yeah. are... Oh, it's called accommodation. Okay. So based on subtle movements of the eyeball, they are able to judge three-dimensional distances precisely with a single eye. But how? I mean, how does it work? How, how, do, how are they able to do it and we can't? I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> some sort of crazy weird. physics going on. There is some crazy physics going on. But what that means is that the chameleon has on either side of its head three-dimensional view in two directions. Yeah, and then Complete. when they find a prey item, they will go fully binocular. But so that straight means ahead, just exactly. So yeah. they will bring both eyes looking at the target, and then they shoot the tongue. I mean, can they see um, behind them as well? They can. Yeah, they have. They have a hundred percent. Like there's, I don't think there's any part of a chameleon's body except directly at Underneath. the back of the head. Yeah. That it. Uh, yeah, and perhaps underneath its chin that it cannot see. Wow. That's so it's really very impressive. Um, chameleons also have these weird hands that are the hands are divided <laughs> um, three bundles, so so three toes and two toes in the front. So two different bundles of three toes and two toes. 
Yeah. And at the back, I think it's two toes and three toes. So they're split the other way. And this phenomenon, we've actually just very recently coined a new term for that. Um, I don't think it's even appeared in print yet. And this was something that I was talking about with Darren Nash on Twitter. At, so that's at Tetsu on Twitter. Um, we were getting into a conversation because there's no clear term for what this is. Because everyone calls this zygodactyl, which okay. is the term from, from parrots and things, which is two forward, two backward. Yeah. But, of course, now you have five digits. So the two forward, two backwards doesn't really make sense. Hmm. And so I propose something along the lines of anisofacalodactyly, <laughs> which means Mean. uneven bundled toes. Sounds as good as um, any. Which in terms of Greek is, is um, I would say, uh, to be very immodest, quite an impressive feat, uh, yeah. considering that I don't speak any Greek. <laughs> um, but instead, Darren suggested that we use chameleodactyly, and um, that has been well received by at least some of my colleagues and so probably we're going to start referring to it as chameleodactyly um anyway that's something of a digression chameleons have weird toe bundles okay and then finally chameleons all have a um non-autotomizable so they cannot drop their extremely prehensile tail and um chameleons of course have that famous rolled up tail that yeah. is um you know in django and all of the other things and so those are the three hallmarks of chameleons the silly hands these <laughs> incredible hands. eyeballs and their extremely prehensile tails cool. now um geckos on the other hand are typified by having um oh it's sort of difficult because geckos are such a complicated group all of the geckos in Madagascar, at least, do not have eye eyelids. So okay. <laughs> snakes don't have eyelids, and geckos don't have eyelids, and those are the two main groups of all reptiles that lack eyelids. Um, there are exceptions to this, like the very commonly held um, uh, leopard geckos. Yeah. Leopard geckos, of course, have eyelids, and that's because they belong to a different family within the... Um, Gekota, so they belong to the Ublutari day. I mean, just looking at Gecko's feet, I mean, it's... yeah, <laughs> you can yeah. just sort of tell, can't you? You can usually tell, but this is again a thing. So, there are, for example, things like Cryptoblepharus, which are these cave geckos from uh, Cryptoblepharus, or I think in Southeast Asia, someone's gonna correct me. Um, but, for example, in, in North America, you have coleonics, which are these cave geckos. And they have clawed tips and basically no, um, no adhesive structures. Okay. So what the, the typical thing that you think about when you think of a gecko is it has sticky toes. Yeah. And that will help you very quickly to identify whether or not it's a gecko. So chameleons are... can't do that. Yes, oh. chameleons can't do that. They also have these little very fine hairs underneath their feet, which probably help them get grip, um, yeah. but they're not helping them to actually, they're not like totally adhesive, sticky, sticky toes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, so geckos are totally insane, if I can digress for just a <laughs> second. If you know about, um, there are a few 
species or a few genera of geckos in Australia. Lialis is one of the, the most well-known, but there's also Delma and all of these things, which are in the family... Um, Oh, I'm just blanking on all the different things today. <laughs> what is it? Uh, they are Pygopodidae. So the Pygopodids are called scaby foots or scaby feet. And they are legless geckos. No legs? So they, no legs. They have at oh. the back these silly little flaps <laughs> that are like fins that maybe help them still steer through the sand. But otherwise... They are legless geckos, and Wait, some they, of them... They don't even have front legs? They don't have front legs at all. Completely limbless. Wow. Completely limbless, except for these silly flaps near the cloaca. Wow. Um, and some of them have specialized on eating geckos. So there are these geckos <laughs> that have become snake-like and now eat geckos again, as though Australia didn't have mm. enough snake-like things. I think they're <laughs> angry, or maybe they're jealous of other geckos. <laughs> yeah, all these limbs. it's possible. Yeah, it's totally <laughs> ridiculous. That's um, crazy. I've never heard of that. Yeah, yeah. So that was something that that was probably the biggest thing, like biggest group of animals that I should have known about that I only learned about like three or four years ago, that just totally blew my mind. Yeah, that there are practically legless <laughs> geckos somewhere out there. <laughs> They're That's so cool. crazy. Yeah, and and um, they have interestingly. So they're. The pygopodids have that typical gecko thing of not having eyelids. So they look almost like snakes. Yeah, I but looked then, at their eye there. They look sort of like a yeah. like, you know, snake-like eye. It's weird. Exactly. But then they have the ridiculous gecko tongue, and yeah. they clean their eyes with their tongues. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. So you have this, this thing that looks like a snake, and then what it stick, sticks out is not the fine sinuous very deeply forked snake tongue yeah but instead big... the very wide spatulate sort of gecko tongue which to me is just like that is a strange so tongue weird. i must admit i mean it has sort of a large i don't know what you'd call it on the end just a large sticky thing but yeah it's just a large sticky patch it's yeah. so yeah yeah so are as those, soon as i found so, out about are those large you know the sticky part of the tongue is that similar to the sticky pads on their feet no, no, no. Completely it's very, different. very different structure. So they, those sticky, sticky part of the tongue is just, um, it's just a spatulate thing, and they have probably long, um, probably sort of elongated taste buds. I would imagine in some of them. I mean, would they secrete the something out of their eating. tongue in order to stick uh, to their prey? No, I think that they have the saliva because for the most part. So, so this is the other big difference between chameleons and all of the other or yeah, all of the other lizards is they have, chameleons have this ballistic tongue and the ballistic tongue, which is just a fancy way for saying the tongue that shoots out. Yeah. It has that very, very, very sticky tip, which also is not just sticky, but also sort of um, envelopes or, or, or oh, that was entirely the wrong pronunciation. <laughs> we, we know what you mean. Yes. Envelops. Yep. The prey item. <laughs> <laughs> I added an E too many on the end. So it so, just it just comes out like a missile strikes the it, prey and then sort exactly. of wraps around it. Cool. Exactly. And then the prey is is um, is stuck on not with just with the sticky saliva, but also with yeah. suction into that tongue. Um, Amazing. Yeah. 
Whereas geckos are hunting with their jaws, so they are not using their tongues to move the food into the mouth. So how do they catch their prey? Just by biting it the way that you and I would if if we were trying to... Well, well. I mean, (laughs) say they were trying to capture, you know, a flying insect. I mean, does their tongue not help? No, no. No. They literally have to be quicker. The tongue will help them to (laughs) manipulate the the item into the mouth and, and around the mouth. Yeah. But they don't, um, so into the mouth, once it's already in the jaw. They literally just the, have to catch the prey. Exactly. They have to catch it with their jaws. So they're much quicker than chameleons. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so, well, I don't know about much quicker, uh, much quicker in terms of their overall body moving ability. Yes. Yeah. So chameleons tend to be quite slow, sort of plodding um, predators, whereas yeah. geckos are tend to be very, very high energy sort of crazy predators. Um <laughs> Yeah, and okay. that's why they sit around your lights when you're in the Mediterranean. Yeah, I always, whatever. that's the only place I saw a gecko, just on a, near a light bulb. Yeah, yeah, so all <laughs> of those, a lot of the, that's the other thing, so all chameleons are diurnal. So yeah. Actually during the day, because of course, um, with their extremely vision-reliant hunting system, Yeah. You, you just can't hunt in the dark. Of course. Um, whereas many, many, many geckos are nocturnal, and... Um, in fact, it's sort of been shown that in some geckos, at least, they probably have extremely good color vision, even in almost complete darkness. Yeah. Uh, because they have these very fancy modified um, um, eye receptor cells. Brilliant. Yeah. So uh, just one last question. Um, are you involved in any uh, psychom or outreach related sort of work or project at the minute? Um, no, not as such. This sort of makes me feel guilty being on a Psycom <laughs> podcast, you know. And I just listened to, to the most recent episode, um, and I was like, oh, this person has done all the things, <laughs> and here I am. All well, I do is well, sometimes... I'll rephrase it. Is there anything you want to do in the future? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, well, yes, sort of. I find that I quite like my system. So what I basically do is that I am a low intensity tweeter Mm -hmm. and then, or well, low to mid intensity, depending on your frame of reference. (laughs) And then occasionally I will just go on a rant where I explain (laughs) all of the things about, for example, this chameleon vision. Um, I I went on a rant about how chameleon eyeballs work and how crazy chameleon adaptations are. And um, I quite like that system because it's less uh, commitment for me. Yeah, you just do it on the spur of the moment yeah. type thing. And I think what's important is that I came to SciComm not via Twitter, mm-hmm. which might have been better for me, but I yeah. came to it via Tumblr. Okay. And um, so in the early, so in 2013, I set up my Tumblr account. And somewhere quite early on, I got keen on just talking about Madagascar and things. And um, and especially just showcasing all of the different species from Madagascar and talking, speculating about various different evolutionary hypotheses and all this stuff. So I did a lot, a lot, a lot on Tumblr. And a lot of, so the nice thing about Tumblr is that it allows for sort of long structured rants and, um, and well, people call them text posts or whatever. Yeah. Um, but essentially it's just a rant in a, in a single place. <laughs> and that is something that uh, for me is, difficult on twitter and well you can so, do all those threads now you could do yeah exactly that's true that's true 
So I use threads and I, I do some SciComm on Twitter occasionally. Mostly I just am chatting with other scientists because that for me is like the big thing about, about I mean, the SciComm movement got, and Twitter. If you've stuff. got all these photos of all these different species, you know, they go down well on Twitter, I think. Yeah, exactly. So, so. I do that as well. I, I post a lot of pictures and uh, I try to tell people a lot of what I'm working on and... Um, because for me, like, I'm, I'm just so excited to be working on the stuff that I'm working on. Yeah, exactly. So sh it, share the excitement and then everyone exactly. will be excited. So it comes <laughs> as a huge benefit that other people also seem to really enjoy the stuff yeah, that I'm doing. I think doing. people love, you know, visually seeing all these different species because they're so yeah, colorful as well. Yeah, especially for people who have the huge privilege of getting to work in the tropics. Yeah, exactly. And that is something that, you know, you can't overestimate there's so many people who dream about going to the tropics and never got to experience it yeah so i like to try and share sort of my ex field work experiences partly to make people super jealous um, but <laughs> mostly to give them sort of an insight to that vicarious sort of um uh, experience that yeah. you can get so uh, i do that i have been toying for the last few months with the idea of maybe setting up my own podcast um, at the moment, it's really just... Uh, so what do you think? You're going to do it after this? The... Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. Or is uh, this put you me... No, for me, I think that um, I am not the person to be doing an interview podcast. Because... Oh, yeah. Just do whatever you want. There are, to... there are yeah. all these different types. Of course. I, I, I like the format of this podcast. And I like the way that, you know, you can you get an insight into the different people's work. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's more, I would be interested in sort of highlighting what the big movements are in sort of evolutionary biology and herpetology and stuff. Yeah, of course. And there are a few podcasts like um, Herp uh, Herpetological Highlights, which is done by wow. some, some nice guys. I'll from, have to subscribe to that. That's a really good podcast. And they what's quite cool about their stuff is that they don't have this... Um, this obsession with impact factor that so many of the like you know the, the nature and science podcasts yeah they, they both have their own but they're all focused on sort of what is the biggest 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 news story <laughs> yeah. whereas um whereas ben and tom on this herpetological highlights thing they sort of talk through um the various like they'll they'll choose three or four tiny papers that are like in in notes journals so really sort of insignificant publications but they discuss them in a lot of detail, which gives you an insight into like what is possible in these small con contributions and stuff. So I really yeah. like that. But for me, what's missing is more of um, like the Tetsu podcast, which is something where you, they really focus on what the big, big movements have been. Yeah. Um, but in sort of this, uh, this very enjoyable, light humored way. Yeah, I think that's and probably so, the best way to do any sort of yeah, podcast, just to yeah. be relaxing as well exactly. so maybe just the last thing i want to ask you yeah uh, what has been your most memorable moment in madagascar oh it's hard to say because there are all there are always like there are good memorable and bad uh, memorable uh do one from each i think <laughs> let's do one from if each. you have right, so, uh so this year um i was joined in the field by my partner ella mm -hmm. and just after she came we were joined by a, a cyclone called Ava. Wow. <laughs> and that made our life in the, in the forest extremely unpleasant. 
I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any cover or anything? Uh, we were deep inside the forest, which is actually worse. So yeah. if I'd been on the edge of the forest, I think I would have felt more comfortable. Mm. But being surrounded by these like 600-year-old trees that look like the slightest breeze <laughs> would not bring down, you know, 100 tons of tree on top of your tent. Yeah. God. That for me is absolutely terrifying. So was that your your best? Or that was <laughs> that you was can, among you can tell us your worst. best. <laughs> I should well, I I have to say that that was made somewhat worse then as the New Year's. Um, this was just at the beginning of the New Year celebration. Our cook went mm-hmm. nuts and ran around the camp with a machete and threatened people and stuff. And My that goodness. was extremely unpleasant. That sounds scary to me. Yeah, yeah. So that was probably one of the worst experiences that I've had in Madagascar. Just because, and I was asleep at the time. That's the worst part. Oh, I was ill, and um, and then there was screaming. And then uh, Ella came into the tent and was like, "Oh yeah, the cook, the cook's just gone mad, and he was beaten up by the other guys. At least goodness. there were several people who could keep him under control." Um, wow. But yeah, so that was you know, there's always a person factor, and it's yeah. unpredictable. Of course. But in this particular case, that was um, too close for comfort. Yeah. Something that could have been really, really horrendous. Because we were uh, a good day's walk from the nearest town. Yeah. And then, um, you know, even further from the nearest hospital. So if anything really goes wrong there, you're in a dangerous situation. Of course. So what? maybe end it with uh, yeah. your, your, ha- your happiest memory. <laughs> the happiest memories, you know, every time you find something that's new and really really new that mm-hmm. is a is that's an incredible experience so like as if you're the first person ever to see that species exactly yeah. well the first scientist at least you know yeah. it's easy to forget that the the local people have probably seen hundreds oh, yeah, of probably. these <laughs> they but probably, yeah, <laughs> they, they don't care me. at all um and so yeah no for for us it's um or for me at least whenever i find something that's really new like on on the the last expedition um i had brought to me so i was not the person who actually found it in the leaf litter but i had brought to me one of these cofiline frogs that is so extremely Mm -hmm. exciting that's actually the genus that i'm most focused on yeah um this guy brought to me one and it was immediately obvious that it's a new species. And that is just, that's so exciting. You ran at him you know? just screaming. Ah. Yeah, I did. And then I carried it around in its little plastic bag to everybody else and was like, look mine. at this. And this is, a, it's just a little brown blob. Yeah. And so everyone, everyone's like, um, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, this is new though. Yeah, for me, this blob. is like, this is a really big deal. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we've had a few of those experiences where it's just been like, this is, you know, our opportunity. Yeah. Getting that opportunity um, to find something new, that's a huge feeling. Or cool. finding something that you've not seen before and yeah. you've described and then you get to see it. So, for example, yeah. my, my very first species description was this big fat frog called Rhombophrine uh, vaventi. And in 2016, I was up at the top of this mountain, Marajeji, that I mentioned before. Yeah. And I, um, we were brought one by by one of our collectors, and I was just over the over the moon because it was just it's such a cool feeling to be like I named this. <laughs> there it is. This is the For one real. that I named, and I have never seen it alive before. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's an exciting that's moment. Just 
such a crazy feeling. And it's so, you know, it's so gratifying. Um, and this is something that I really value about Psycom is, you know, when we get to talk about these new species and then people are really excited about them. Yeah. That is, that's so... It's the best bit. It's, that's the best bit. You know, it's a huge amount of work to go and write these papers. Um, and it's, it's even more work to do the field work involved in actually collecting the specimens. Yeah. Uh, but just the, the feeling of, you know, people appreciate this. People really find this interesting. That makes the whole thing. It's like being a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> You're a rock star, Mark. Yep, definitely. <laughs> well, well, I'm not sure about that, but it's always a nice feeling to have my, my stuff appreciated. I really of course. Like that. Of course. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, Mark, for taking the time out of your schedule to come on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you tell me all about herpetology and all the various goings on in Madagascar. So thank you very much. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's really fun to just chat. I'm, I'm, uh... <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't oh. chat anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about Madagascar. So if anybody has any questions or anything, I'm happy to answer them. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the SciComm Podcast. If you have any questions for Mark, feel free to contact him on Twitter at Mark Schurz. Or if you would like to join me on the podcast and be a guest, please feel free to tweet me at Dr. Mike Ogrifer. Until next time, take care.